Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Diving into the sermon now, um, we are in this series that if you've been with us for this entire year, uh, you've noticed we've walked through this, this grand theme called the garden. And we looked at the Bible and the Bible itself, which has this overarching narrative of the garden, that which starts in the garden and it uh, has garden imagery all throughout, but then it ends in this garden-like city where uh, we have cultivated and we are now reigning and ruling with God as we were always intended to. Um, there's a few hiccups in the middle, but uh, the whole theme of garden then gets us to this where we're at right now, which is trellis. And trellis is this idea of what are we building our life on? How are we building structures in our life so that we can actually um, position ourselves well to experience more of God? Um, Father Jacques Philippe, he says this, the fundamental problem of our spiritual life becomes this, how can I let Jesus act in me? How can I permit the grace of God to freely operate in my life. So a trellis, what it does, it takes grapevines and it just positions it so that the leaves can be facing towards the sun. And what we're trying to do is through practices and disciplines and rhythms that Jesus himself implored is to position the leaves of our lives to experience and face the sun of God's presence so that we can bear fruit, so that we can look more like Jesus. This is the aim of our entire life. And the fruit that we bear, if you've read Galatians 5, is the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, some commentators note, because if you're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and it goes down the list. But a lot of commentators note that the word fruit in Galatians 5 is not plural. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, even though it comes with a list. It's fruit, singular. And the reason for that, a lot of commentators will note, is that the fruit is love. The very first thing, love, that is the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus shows us what love is. And then everything else that follows is definers of what love looks like. And if you notice, then the first thing in the list of the fruit being love, Christ-likeness, is joy. Joy is the first definer of what it looks like to be a person of love. And so our aim today is to talk about joy a little bit. What does it look like to live a life of celebration and mission? And you might be like, I don't know how those two things tie, and I promise I'll show you how they tie up in a second. But before we talk about joy, I've sat in your seat when I've gone through some pretty tough stuff. And I've also sat across the table from people who are deeply mourning, walking through actual grief and pain. And it is one of the worst things in a moment like that to say, feel joy. To have a Band-Aid language, just a slap on top, maybe a Bible verse just to say, it's going to be better, they're in heaven now, or whatever you might say to do a Band-Aid, to try to bypass the process. See, the thing with grief is it's not a bone to be mended. It's not a sickness to be healed from. It's a new way of life that we have to orient ourselves living around. And the reality is, with grief, we have a God who is good enough. We have a God who is safe enough for our big emotions, a God who actually cries with us, who wants to meet us in the grief as we walk slowly through it. And so if that's you, I just wanna say, um, we're gonna talk about joy today. And I want you to know that. And this might be a sermon that you, you put in your pocket. And it might not be 
directly applicable to you in this moment, but I think that there's a lot of things that you can glean from it. And the other thing that I want to say, because um, Dr. Brene Brown says that we cannot selectively dole emotions, meaning that if we try to bypass pain and grief and sadness, we are actually doling the sharp edge of joy and laughter and happiness as well. And so we need to be able to go into those emotions with the safety net that we know that God is with us. And in our culture, one of the things that I've been thinking about is the fact how we have in our cultural moment, this greatest good is authenticity. That if you wanna actually be real, if you want the greatest good in our culture is to be authentic. But I think in our attempt to be authentic, we have equated that with cynicism or being a quote unquote realist where everything is on fire. And so we actually have a hard time lifting our eyes above the chaos that we've magnified to let ourselves explore hope and joy. I think many of us in our attempt to be realist, to be authentic, we actually haven't allowed ourselves to take hold of maybe some of the other things that are deeper like love and joy and peace, even when we don't feel them. And so we think that our feelings are gonna tell us what's most authentic. So if that's you, I would say this sermon is actually for you because there's something about if we look at the Jewish calendar, if we look at Jesus' life, as we look at throughout church history, all of those things, we see that there is uh, rhythms, there are practices of celebration that orient our lives and our hearts towards the kingdom of God that shape and change us in the here and now. And that's what we wanna get after. So uh, if you're with me, I would love for us to uh, stand as we read this word, just so that we can identify the fact that the word of God that I'm about to read is the most important thing that we're gonna talk about today. So Luke 4, verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up that scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. But the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying this to them, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Now, this is a baller moment by Jesus. Absolute mic drop. Um, even if you don't understand what he's saying, which I'm gonna talk about in a second, but even if you don't know what he's really saying, we know that there's something profound going on by the simple fact everyone in the synagogue, dead silent, are staring at Jesus. He turns around with this one-liner, today it's here. I mean, you have to like, without knowing what's going on, you know immediately that Jesus just, just said something profound. So let me add some volume and color and maybe breathe into what Jesus is saying for a sec. He says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now they would have known, because it's a Jewish audience, exactly what he was saying. It's referring back to Leviticus 25, which was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, again, something that we don't really know. I think that maybe the queen just had like her silver Jubilee year or something, but we don't know anything about London because we're American, right? London, I said London. I don't even know what I'm talking about, right? We don't know anything about that side of the pond, I guess. So Jubilee is something we don't know very much about, but in Leviticus 25, it gives us kind of this roadmap of what it was for the Israelites. 
Every seven years, they'd have a thing called a sabbatical year. That sounds wonderful. Could you imagine every seven years, you just got like a whole year off work? You didn't have to do anything except go to the beach and surf, play pickleball as much as you wanted, walk around in people's yards and just take off their fruit. You could do whatever you wanted during that year. And so every seven years, they had a sabbatical year. And then if you count off seven times seven, on the 49th year, they'd have the sabbatical year, but then they would have the 50th year. The year after that, they called it the year of Jubilee. Now, jubilee is a word that literally means celebration. Jubilation is what we say. And so this was a party. This was a year that they, like, they looked forward to once in a lifetime. Unless you were born, you're like two years old when you had your first jubilee. And so this was a year they looked forward to. It was this incredible year, and it was two years in a row of like a sabbatical year, but this year was even different. This year was a year that everyone got set free. If you sold yourself into slavery because you needed to pay off debt, slaves were set free. If you had land that you had to sell and it was like your family inheritance because inheritance and land was so incredibly crucial to them, all of that land would be returned. And if you didn't have any land, you were, you were poor, you didn't have any financial things that you could actually do to get, make gain. Maybe you were a widow and so you didn't have any support system. This was a year that actually elevated you to the same standing because you got to walk around in whoever's field you wanted and pick their food and it was at no cost. This was a full social and economic and land restart. This was a year that pointed forward to a heavenly reality. This was a year that pointed forward to heaven where everything is set free. There's liberation. Everyone is on the same playing field. There's no different, um, there's no divisions or anything like that. Heaven and earth are collided and it is harmony and peace and wholeness. And this year gave a taste of eternity. Now, the year of Jubilee started on the Day of Atonement, which if you look at your Google calendar right now, you can see Yom Kippur is tomorrow, and that's the Day of Atonement. It is the holiest day of the year for the Jews. This was the, year where, uh, this was the day of the year when they would look at their calendar and they'd say, man, this is the day that God set us free. And so we would, we would give our sacrifices and we'd say, Lord, would you forgive me? And then they'd party. No one knows how to party like the Jews. Like they just party after this because they realize that their debts are forgiven. There is all of this economic reset. So it was an absolute feast, an absolute party. And Jesus then enters in and he says, I'm here. All of that, everything you're looking forward to, all the goodness, the beauty, that heaven and earth kind of collision, it's me. Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline says, in the Old Testament, All the social stipulations of the year of Jubilee, canceling debts, releasing slaves, planting no crops, returning property to its original owner, were a celebration of the gracious provision of God. God could be trusted to provide what we needed. And Jesus says, that's me. So perhaps what Jesus is trying to get at is that celebration and mission are actually more closely linked together than we realize. Because if Jesus is saying Jubilee, where it's like this heaven and earth collision, but it's also this massive celebration is found in me, then we can understand that celebration and mission are two hands shaking in unity. So what is the intersection of celebration and mission? In my sermon, there's gonna be three main movements. The first movement is gonna be we celebrate as a means of mission. The second is that we, uh, our mission is cause for celebration. And thirdly, we celebrate as subjects of Christ's mission. So the first movement, we celebrate as a means of mission. It means that the life that we live, 
the way that we walk, the way that we love, how we carry deep joy, how we walk through pain and suffering, the community and the family that we have as a church, the way that we celebrate actually turns heads to the world that is desperate for what we have. We all know what it's like when people tell us the words of Jesus without the life of Jesus. We know people who say, I've got good news for you, here's the gospel, and their life looks nothing but, it's not good at all. We know how when people try to use the words of life, but they don't have actual life, how much damage that does. We see how it can actually do the converse effect of what they're trying to do. And so we realize that our mission, we need to have a life that's actually transformed. We need to have joy in our lives. Could you guys, uh, as a thought experiment, could you close your eyes really fast? I promise I'm not gonna do anything weird. Um, In your mind, could you imagine Jesus right now? Now, just for context, if you have a hard time, he was a Jewish man. He lived in the Mediterranean desert regions, so he was likely darker skinned. He had brown hair. He worked with his hands. Just take a moment and just imagine him looking at you. Now you can open your eyes. I'd love for you to raise your hands on this, but um, how many of you, when you... Imagine to Jesus, was he smiling? Nice. And if you didn't, no shade. Um, But the thing is, is we have a picture of Jesus that's been given to us through these paintings that have gone through the Renaissance. And every picture we see of Jesus, he looks morose, he looks sad, he looks decrepit, he is beaten up. Every picture, he does not look like a joyful savior. And that's the image that we get, less of an image created by scripture and more of an image created by oil and canvas. And when we see that, we can't help but then to read scripture and not wanna read scripture because why would we wanna read about a grungy God? Why would we wanna read about a Jesus who isn't that merry or isn't that joyful or isn't celebrating over our life? But Matthew 11, verse 19, it says, the son of man, meaning Jesus, he came eating and drinking. I love this about God. I love that he just came and he just like was eating California burritos and drinking Coca-Cola and having a great time. Like he just loved to eat and drink. And they said, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus said, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Meaning he was not a drunkard and he was not a glutton, but he did enjoy himself. And he says, my life proves that. And what I'm trying to get at is the fact that Jesus was not this like kind of crusty image that we get from oil and canvas. He is a joyful, glad savior. Jesus is our model for gladness. Hebrews 1.9 quotes this messianic prophecy about Jesus and it's from Psalm 45. And it says this about Jesus. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you, Jesus, above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Jesus is described in the Old Testament and then pictured in the New Testament as one who is anointed with the oil of joy. John Piper says Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. His gladness is greater than those of the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. And then Jesus' famous teaching, his longest sermon, um, but in, in Luke, what's a little bit more condensed, Luke 6, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. I think we think of blessing as like Rolexes and Teslas, you know? Like we, we like to think of blessing in terms of worldly things, and that's not what he's getting at at all. The word blessed here is the Greek word makarios, which is better translated happy. Happy are you. Joyful are you who are poor. How? Well, because yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus, when he's saying this, he's sitting and he's looking. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He's sitting and he's looking at people who are poor. And he's telling them, joyful, happy are you who are poor because I'm right here. He says, happy are you who hunger. He's looking at hungry people. He says, because you will be satisfied. And he says, happy are you who weep right now. He's looking at people who are weeping. And he says, because you will laugh. I am right here. He says, you'll laugh. Now, I think laughter is actually a really interesting thing. Um, uh, I'm watching my son who is now 12 months. I don't really know like when it shifts between, he's just a year old, right? You just say a year. Um, He's 12 months. Apparently you do that until 24 months. Otherwise it gets weird after that. But he's 12 months. um, And there is nothing, nothing like better than the laugh and the giggle of, a 12-month-old, or a baby in general, right? Their, their laughs are infectious. They just fill you up with joy. Early on, and I realized how weird this was, but um, I, I was like just in a moment when you're vulnerable on the stage and you just say stuff you shouldn't say, and I'm saying it to you right now. Um, I was like, oh, I wish I could just like throw on my, my AirPods and just walk and listen to like, you know, babies giggle. And I was like, no, I, no, I don't. That's weird. <laughs> That's creepy. And I, I don't actually want that. But what I'm trying to get at is how pure that is, right? How pure the giggle. I made you laugh. You feel better now, right? There's something so pure about when a baby is laughing. But right now at 12 months, he's doing this thing where he's practicing laughing slash faking it. And it's always like, it's not even like the right moments. Like he's doing something that he shouldn't be doing and he's laughing and you're like, wait, no, stop laughing. You know, I don't, I don't know what to do because I want to encourage him to laugh, but I don't want him to think that's okay and I don't know what to do. And as I was studying for this, one of the things that I noticed about laughter is laughter is innate. We are born and we don't really giggle like right away, but we develop laughter and every baby does. There's not a baby who doesn't, right? We all develop laughter. There's a nature to it. There's natural laughter that comes about. But in studying for this, I've also noticed that laughter is something we learn. So we have it, but we can also grow in our capacity for laughter and joy. As we, as we position ourselves to get around things that bring us joy, when we surround ourselves with community, as we lean into moments where laughter is just naturally going to happen, and as we do that more and more, we become people who are joyful, people who laugh easily. And so laughter is something we have as well as something we grow in. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, um, exploring the relationship between fallen humanity and humor, he wrote this, humor involves a sense of proportion and seeing oneself from the outside. The comic muse teaches us to humbly see ourselves as others see us, to have a perspective outside of our own myopic view. What he's saying is humor, laughter, joy, celebration does something to us. It shifts our perspective. 
right? We can so easily get caught up in the milieu of daily moments, right? The hustle and the worry of the day. And we can critique and look at ourselves and take ourselves way too seriously. But what humor does is it calls us to lift our eyes, to see ourselves from a a less uh, lighthearted point of view. We don't look down with negative self-deprecation, but we look up and we see that there's joy and there's goodness. We can get caught in the cycle of self-deprecation. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. I think partly this is what Jesus did for people because he shifted their perspective away from judgment and into grace. See, when we take ourselves way too seriously, we can get into shame cycles. We beat ourselves up when we sin because we should have been doing something better. And we work our way into this works-based religiosity. But Jesus pulls us from that. And he, has, he really helps us to like not take ourselves too serious. And he says, no, no, like, I mean, walk with grace. Follow me. And when you stumble, get back up and keep following me. Don't take yourself too seriously. This claim is actually validated throughout science and research because recent research has been showing that the ways that we can actually combat depression, one of the best ways is by seeing ourselves from other people's points of view and particularly serving other people. I was, uh, as I was studying this, I watched a few TED Talks on happiness and laughter. And one of the interesting things, I thought this was kind of crazy, there's a secular professor of happiness at Harvard. Could you imagine having that job? Like, what do you even study to become a happiness professor at Harvard? And could you imagine that guy having a bad day? Like, can't believe your PhD, I'm not into it anymore. Like, I couldn't imagine what it took for him to become this happiness professor. But I was listening to his TED Talk, and here's what he said. He said, happiness is a cocktail, or it's a combination of a few things. It is faith, family, friends, and purposeful work or service. That's the combination it takes for you to be happy. Which, as a Bible nerd and as a follower of Jesus, I didn't need the secular Harvard happiness professor to validate that. Right? It's fascinating, though. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, the life that he lived and the life that he calls us into, he calls us into one of faith, family of God and community, friendship with others and with God. Jesus says, I've called you friends. And he gives us a life of purpose and service and work. If you didn't hear Benji's sermon, where work is purposeful. The theologian Elton Trueblood, he wrote a book called The Humor of Christ, which means he he just walked through the Gospels and he looked at the original context, the original language, and Jesus himself. And he actually highlighted how we miss this in translation, but Jesus employed humor all of the time. All of his teaching, I mean, there's like humorous moments. He was making people laugh as he taught. He taught with joy. He taught with humor and with tact. And that was so important and we totally miss it. And what would it look like for us if we realized Jesus was actually really funny? Would we read the Bible more? I would hope so. Jesus is joyful. Just on another note, I think that God actually sending Jesus is a certain sense of divine humor against the pride of the enemy. In Psalm 2, it says this, the kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. If you do a study throughout the gospels, and you take note of all the times Jesus is feasting with people or he's bringing people into family or note when he heals people, what is their response? It's always joy. It's always jubilation. It's always jumping and dancing and gratitude and celebration. 
For me in the morning, I've been, um, my son doesn't understand what I'm doing, but I'm like, we're doing Bible before breakfast. And so I'm reading through the book of Acts with him. Again, he has no idea what we're doing, um, but it's a good practice that we're doing. And one of the things that I've been noticing through the book of Acts is how, um, which is just the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Every town they go into, every time the kingdom of God breaks in and people get healed or people get saved, there's one word that is on repeat, joy. Joy is this word repeated through Acts. It is the response to the gospel. Some scholars actually even argue that joy is one of the central themes to the book of John. So Jesus's ministry, if we look at Psalm 2, is a joyful triumph over the pain and brokenness of the world. Jesus came to be a joyful triumph over pain and brokenness. So if Jesus is our model for gladness, and that's the way that he taught, and that's the way he showed us his nature. Then joy is our apologetic. Joy is the way that we show the world who Jesus is. Paul from prison, one of his followers, one of Jesus' followers in Philippians 4 says, rejoice, which is just the verb form of joy. Joy in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And another time Paul was in prison because he was in prison a lot. Apparently, if you want to follow Jesus, you just go to prison. Um, I'm not doing a good job, I guess. But it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I can't even stay up past 10. And these guys at midnight, they're singing and hollering and they are celebrating and worshiping God. And all of the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. It's a very Roman thing to do. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in. He felt trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the household at that hour, which is probably like three in the morning at this point. The jailer took them, washed their wounds, and immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. That brings joy. The passage begins with worship and singing in jail, joy in traumatic situations, which led to their chains breaking off, prison doors flying open, the jailer being saved from death. And then it ends with the gospel bringing more joy. I think it's an undeniable fact. If you've been around someone who laughs, they just make you laugh too. Joy begets joy. Laughter begets laughter, which begets more laughter. And joy brings more joy. Joy tells the story of God and it reveals the very character of God. To quote Bono from U2, joy is the ultimate act of defiance. Richard Foster, again, he says, we need to be lighthearted in what we do to avoid taking ourselves too seriously. It is a cheerful revolt against self and pride. Have you ever thought about joy as warfare? Joy is warfare against the brokenness of the world. It is joy that shows us the goodness of God. When we're walking through situations, what would it look like to say, in a revolt against this, I choose joy? I think we need to see Jesus as absolutely stunning. 
absolutely captivating and absolutely beautiful. Honestly, I think grungy and crusty Christians have yet to see a beautiful Savior. But those who know and are known by a joy-filled God, the one that the Psalms says sings over us with joy, the one who created us in Genesis as a celebratory joy-filled expression, the one who loves us, it is those people, followers of Jesus, who are meant to be the most joy-filled people that the world has ever seen. We should pattern our lives around it. We should step into celebration. I think over the course of time, as we do that, as we set our minds above, as Paul talks about, as we, as we transform our minds, the renewal of our minds, as we step into that, we think about joy. We don't become people who just have joy in a moment because we've all had that. We become people who are joy people who are joyful to the core of our being. Jesus wasn't someone who just acquired joy. He was someone who embodied joy, which means that we would just walk through life differently. We walk with lenses and perspectives and postures that are different. We are transformed to be like Jesus. Another thought experiment, I just want you to think about who is the most joyful person that you know? Unfortunately, it's pretty hard to think of someone, huh? But as I've thought about it, um, two different groups of people kind of come to mind. It's usually kids or older people. No one in the middle. What's wrong with us? We're not joyful, I guess. Um, Kids, they're not sitting there worrying about the pains of the world. Ideally, they're just busy being loved. They're running around knowing how loved they are, so they're, they're joyful. But then older people... I think they've learned to dig from a deeper well through pain. They have found the pains of the world and through that they found contentment, which is a foundation for joy. I don't think it's trite for an older person to say, man, life is beautiful. I don't think it's trite for an older person to say, glad I'm still breathing, which some of them, I'm glad they are still breathing, you know? I don't, think, I don't think that they need to project an image. You know what I've noticed about when people get older? They care less and less about what people think about them. Why would they need to lie to us to try to help us think that like, oh, you're just trying to be joyful? They truly have joy. When they can wake up and say, I'm so excited that the sun is shining today and they mean it. I think it's because they have learned the art and the practice of celebration. Viktor Frankl, um, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, He walks through what uh, Holocaust survivors had gone through. And his basic premise of his book, as he looks at it, is that in concentration camps, the, the people who made it through were ones who had purpose and belief. The ones who sang through the Holocaust that held anchors of prior faithfulness and future hope, they learned the art of celebration. And Jesus teaches us that we have purpose. And in that purpose, we can have joy. And in joy, we can walk through situations. Arrhenius says the glory of God is man fully alive. Jesus teaches us how to be fully alive. His goal is to heal and to restore and bring life to us, which gets to this next thing, that tables are our life-giving, joy-filled hospitals. Luke 5 it says, after this, Jesus went out and saw tax collectors by the name, or tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. Levi got up and left everything and followed him. And then Levi had a great banquet. Again, Jesus just crushing food. 
for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, it's in the space of the first century table where Jesus did this. Now, in the first century table, the table was about exclusion, not inclusion. The table was about who you identified with. It was about welcome and hospitality, but for specific people. If you sat at a table with someone, you're saying, I agree with you. And Jesus flipped the table. I mean, he did it actually physically, but he does this metaphorically as well, where he says the tables in my world is not about exclusion, it's about inclusion. My table is about taking the people who are far off, the people who feel like they're isolated, the people who feel like they're not welcomed, and to bring them in and say, you are welcome, let's celebrate. Eat this food, drink this drink, which we know brain chemistry-wise fills us with dopamine and endorphins. When you're at a table and you're eating good food and it's like delightful to the taste buds and you're surrounded by community, you celebrate, your body knows it. And so Jesus brings us into this table of celebration. And in that, what he does is he's giving them and he gives us a taste of a table that is yet to come. When we experience the welcome of Jesus, the joy of Jesus around the table, and as we, with open tables, open it up to people and we say, you are welcomed here, we are pointing forward to a joy-filled table that is yet to come, which leads us to movement two. Our mission is cause for celebration. Our mission is cause for celebration. So the Jewish people, they had three feasts, three annual feasts every year that they would rhythm and pattern their entire lives and calendars around. I mean, they would drop everything. They'd travel all the way up to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. They had to build their calendar around this. It was a discipline for them. They disciplined themselves around celebration. But one of the feasts was called the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Firstfruits. It was this Jewish celebration, and it was at this Jewish celebration where God ignited the first greatest missional movement ever, the church. If you've read Acts 2, this is where we kind of understand where the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. And it says, they were all gathered together in one place, and while they were gathered together, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. It filled the whole place where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. After this moment, Peter, who was previously a coward, all of a sudden becomes bold. He shares the gospel. 3,000 people begin to follow Jesus. The rest of Acts is just how the persecuted church continues to grow and advance because they had joy, because they were so pumped about the fact that they were saved, they could not help but contain it. And so they went to town and town and town and they shared about it and people found more joy in the Lord. This missional movement, the missional movement, the church was birthed out of a place of celebration. Now this celebration, Pentecost, was an agrarian feast. It was where they celebrated the first fruits, which was this beautiful symbol of what it came to be. Because what what they did is, is they'd walk through their field and when they saw the very first fruit, which was probably sour and small and was really nothing. They'd pick that fruit and they would celebrate. They'd bring it all the way to Jerusalem and that's what they would honor and celebrate. And you're like, why would you celebrate this tiny thing that means nothing? 
The reason why they would, they would celebrate this tiny, insignificant, sour fruit that they had is because it was just a pointer to the fact that a harvest is coming. They would take this first fruit and say there is something bigger and better on the way. And so it became this symbol. As they celebrated, their celebration was a pointing forward to the fact that there is greater harvest, greater beauty, more spirit, more freedom, more life to come. They patterned themselves around celebration and it changed everything for them. Now, even before Pentecost, we start seeing this foreshadow of joy based off of mission. Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 others, and he sends them out to go into the towns to do exactly what he did. He says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And in Luke 10, 17, it says that the 72 returned with joy. They said, the Lord, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, I don't know about you. I'd be pretty stoked too if I had demons just submitting to Jesus's name as I got to pray for those things. But I think what Jesus' response is actually what's staggering to me. The next verse, Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample over snakes and scorpions to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Verse 20, however, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Notice with all of this celebration, Jesus says, that's cool. Like you can celebrate with all that stuff, but I wanna take you to a deeper reality that cannot be taken. Your greatest cause of celebration is the fact that we are the subjects of Christ's mission. Your greatest cause of celebration is the fact that God loves you and he has secured you and that your name is written in the book of life for all of eternity which leads us to movement three. We celebrate because we are subjects of Christ's mission. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Jesus went to and through the cross with pain and agony, no doubt. But notice the author's fascinating note. It was for the joy that was set before him. What was Jesus' joy? What was it that propelled Jesus through the darkest night of his soul, through the painful crucifixion, and even through the anxiety and the suspense of the days between death and before resurrection? It's you. It's me, it's us. We are the subjects of Christ's joy and mission. And the author then tells us, consider this. Think about it. Remind yourselves of this truth. Remind, fill up your, fill up your thoughts and your imaginations with this truth. You will forget it, so think about it. Consider it. When you're in the darkest valley, when you're walking through pain and agony, when you're in the suspense of unknowing what an outcome may be, consider Jesus for two reasons. One, consider that we are his joy and mission and that we're found in him. No one can take that away. And secondly, consider that as a way of producing joy in us. He says, so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. As we consider Jesus who walked through the cross with joy because of you and me, we are given the very same joy that Jesus had and we can have it as well. 
St. Augustine said that the Christian should be a hallelujah from head to foot. That our life should be screaming and declaring the goodness of God. Now, I've never been to a Jewish wedding. I've seen a lot of them on TikTok, though. And those parties are crazy. Those celebrations look like a good time. And Jewish weddings have always been like that. Jesus' day all the way up. But right now, um, I looked it up. There's this term, hora and mezinki. And this is when they circle up and they dance. They lift the bride and the groom and chairs and they bounce around and they sing together. And it's just, it's just you can tell how exciting and how joy-filled it is. In Jesus' day, um, he had his very first miracle was at a wedding, which is actually super significant. But they went on for days. That's why it was a big deal that they ran out of wine because they were parties. The weddings went on for a long time. And I get to officiate a lot of weddings. We have a young church, and so I get to step into that. Um, we've had friends that have gotten married. I got married, and I love it. Um, but what we know with weddings is that it pulls on something inside every one of us that we actually long for, right? Like, we, none of us want to go out there and dance like fools with no rhythm, but we do it anyways, and we love it. None of us, you know, want to go out there and sing with a cracked voice, but we do it anyways because that was a bop from middle school and we're always going to sing that one, right? As soon as that one song comes on, you're sitting there drinking your water, but you're back on the dance floor. We all know what it's like. There's something about the joy of celebrating someone else. Weddings that draws on this deeper thing that we all have, not for marriage on earth, but for something that we were made for. We were made for joy. We were made for celebration. We were made to have this kind of response in the presence of God. I think it's really fitting that the narrative arc of the Bible, it's, also, it's a garden, but it's also a wedding feast. That in the very beginning, what God does with the first humans is he makes a marriage covenant with them. And then with Israel, he makes a marriage covenant with them. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, the last chapters, it's talking about a wedding feast. It's the culmination of all things. It's when the church and God come together in unity of all things. It says this in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, and with fine linen is righteous, uh, the fine linen is righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed, makarios, happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This story of this wedding feast, this joy, kind of, kind of alludes to something that we actually have uniquely as Christians, we get to look back and hold on to God's faithfulness proven in the past, but we also get to look forward to the promises of restoration and wholeness and healing that is yet to come. And when things in the present are going great, all of the better. But even when the present doesn't seem so peachy, we have these anchors, the past and the present for our soul, a joy that cannot be taken. We as Christians uniquely have that. And so I want us just to end with just some very practical, how do we do this? How do we actually practice celebration and mission? So four C's real quick. Content, context, community, and centered. So very quick word on each. 
the unique content to practice joy is joyful, meaning laugh a little bit, have fun, go put like Jerry Seinfeld reruns on and just listen to humorous things, find comedies, dance a little bit, go play pickleball, go surf, get around with good friends and have a good time. We are called by God to enjoy. Genesis pre-fall before all this brokenness happened and entered into the world. God created everything. He shows us his intent. He said, all of this is for you, enjoy it. Enjoy the garden, enjoy one another, enjoy me. And then sin enters in and broke it all and he's calling us back to joy. As followers of Jesus, we are called and commanded to operate and pursue joy. Again, not fleeting pleasures, not sinful pleasures because there are some of those, but there's nothing wrong with enjoying pleasures. And let those pleasures be a trigger and a doorway for gratitude and celebration and joy. Have you ever wondered why you have taste buds? If it's not to enjoy really good Indian food or Thai food from bird's eye, can I get an amen, right? You guys got real amen right there, that's great. When we wake up and we see a sunrise or we chase to the ocean just to see the sunset so we can put it on Instagram, there's something inside of us that says, this is good. There's something inside of us that we are made to joy. And so the unique content, the practice that we need to step into is pursue joy-filled activities. You are okay to not be sad all the time. You can actually pursue life in joy. You can go look, go to Yosemite and look at the beauty and the grandeur of all of those things and let it lift your heart. This is something good from God. The next thing is the necessary context is missional. That as we step into mission, as Jesus did, as we serve and we love others, as we give ourselves over for others, as we share the gospel with others, we experience lasting joy. Good luck having joy in isolation. We can't do it. Because like love, joy needs others. And so the content and practice, or sorry, the context is missional. And that also leads to the next thing, which joy is found in the beautiful community of Jesus. We just launched Open Tables, not because we feel like we have a silver bullet or not like we feel like, you know, we made that up. We just hijacked Jesus. <laughs> we just, like, we're not original. We took this from Jesus because Jesus found joy in the context of his tables. And so one of the things that you can step into, if you want to step into celebration and mission in your life, join a group. Get around people who want to pursue Jesus. Get around people who make you laugh. Get around people who want to see the gospel advance. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up. And the final thing is the surprising center where joy is found is the gospel. The gospel. If you were to open up to Luke 15, which I'm not gonna go to right now, but there's three stories. There is the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost sons. All of these parables, these stories are the gospel. It's us who are lost and a God who pursues us and saves us and brings us into family. And every time those things that were lost that are now found, there is a party that is thrown. There's always a party. Jesus showed us how good life is through the gospel. And so our life is a response. Everything in your life is a response to prior love. In Jesus' words, he says that you only love because I have first loved you. We only have joy because he came for us in joy. 
So our life is a response. And so we need to respond. We need to respond with joy. We need to be people who cannot help but celebrate. The world needs this. The world needs people who are so caught up in the mission of God. People who are so filled with the spirit of God. People who are so captivated with the beauty and the wonder and the awesomeness and the goodness of God. So much so that their lives exude joy and celebration. Like, would we be people who are so filled with the Spirit of God that we cannot help but to live our everyday, ordinary lives everywhere we go, as we go, as a joy-filled expression, and we see the kingdom of God breaking through? That we could walk around wherever we go and the love of Jesus, the welcome of Jesus, the mission of Jesus to bring people who are far off near to see people who are chained up in cycles of brokenness and pain and addictions and decisions that are dehumanizing them into full life and freedom to see people who are broken healed, to see people who are blind physically and spiritually lit up with sight, to see people who are lonely and isolated brought into family and love, what would it look like for us if we lived our life with such joy and celebration, such missional lives that was so outward and so compelling and beautiful that Encinitas couldn't help but notice? That they'd say, well, what, what's different about you? That light church is different. How are they living life so differently? It starts with leaning in. It starts with us saying in the same way that, that the first church said it, Holy Spirit, come. As you fell with joy on Jesus, as you fell with joy on Pentecost, as you fell with joy throughout church history, and as you still fall joyfully today, would you fall joyfully on me? Would you rest on us? Would you send us in the power of your spirit, in the power of your joy? And as an act, even if it's defiant in the moment, we choose to celebrate. We choose to worship. We choose to step into joy. We choose to step into mission. We choose to reach all the way back into the validated past of God's faithfulness. And we choose to reach forward into the secured and assured future of wholeness and redemption. And we pull them into the present here and now. And we say, Lord, we'll celebrate. We'll rejoice, we'll worship, we'll go in your power to, in mission to the world around us. We will do that because you are worthy. What would it look like if we were that kind of church and that kind of people? Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thank you.